0: and welcome to the shiny new object podcast my name is Tom Ollerton and this is a podcast about the future of marketing every week or so I interview one of our industry's leaders about their vision about the future of marketing and today I'm sat here in Diageo's office in Singapore uh, with Stuart LeBroy who is marketing director of strategic partnerships for Diageo in APAC hi Stuart how are you
1: hey hey, Tom thanks for having me
0: so can you Tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Sure. Um, I'm right now working for Diageo as the marketing director for strategic partnerships. That covers a lot of our Asia relationships with partners that we distribute through, as well as the companies that we work through joint ventures at to market our brands in the market. It also kind of tacks into another part of my job, which is working actively with people from a marketing context who we think we can get value at, whether that be brand partners, influencers, uh, media companies, and the like. Um, I'm a career marketer. I started in P&G, where I made my bones working in healthcare for five years, and then on VIX, and then Shifting careers into prestige beauty for SK2 for another five. Uh, Then I took a bit of a break and went entrepreneurial, an agency startup while I traveled around the world. (laughs) And got back into Singapore last year, around about this time. And joined Diageo and I've been kicking it in alcohol ever since then.
0: Right. I'm going to have to pull you back one step. What was the entrepreneurial bit?
1: Well, yeah, sure. It was was an unusual phase of my life. I think I was having a great time (laughs) in SK2. I was... um, working with the team there on digital disruption, with leading influencers, celebrity negotiations, and all the digital innovation that SK2 was doing worldwide. This was a fantastic ride because I had joined when they were sort of around 800 million. They're now a $2 billion business uh, or thereabouts. And you know, part of that ride was the change they made from a digital disruption standpoint. It heavily influenced how I thought about marketing. But I was getting to the end of that assignment and starting to feel a little bit bored. So my wife and I, well, my my girlfriend at the time, and I decided to get married, quit our jobs, and take a year off to travel around the world. Nice. That was one year, and it ended up being three because we started getting, uh, based on her work, she's a she's a fantastic thinker who was in P&G and then worked in Facebook and has this great tech and strategy expertise. Someone you should probably check out, Tom. But um we both kind of had these really interesting backgrounds and we got these phone calls about would you be willing to help out here on this problem or this challenge? And so what was supposed to be just a straight up trip around the world ended up being um, a fly to China for a meeting with uh, an e-commerce company and run a startup in California. And it all gave us kind of a means to keep it going and ended up being sort of an accidental entrepreneur for about eight months in California and an agency of my own for while on the road for about three years
0: and you gave up that because
1: honestly um, after three years living out of a suitcase you do kind of start missing getting you know having your own place and having your own stuff so I've always been pretty minimalist but you know I think where it really crystallized for both uh, my wife and I was we really wanted to get a dog uh, and so we we thought we'd pack it in and uh, settle back in Singapore a place we love and uh you know, find a, have a house after a very long time of living literally out of Airbnbs in a suitcase. Get some stuff, and you know, I have adopted a shelter dog too. So,
0: and what, what kind of dog do you have?
1: He's a Singapore special, so the local breed. They're like a they're like a rescue dog.
0: Do you and know what? It's, why did I even <laughs> ask that? Like, I don't have <laughs> any idea. But I anyway, know. Congratulations on the dog. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, thanks for that. I think the, in all I think the other okay. thing was
1: I really missed working in a team. Like. I think if you're running a startup and you're you're you, unless you're actually building a team and you've got a great group of people you're working with, for me I was doing a lot of consulting. When I was working on the startup in California, I realized how much I loved being in a group with a group of people building something. And if I wanted to stay on the road working as a as kind of a standalone consultant or with my wife on projects, it was feeling a bit lonely. I was missing that interaction and friction of working in teams. So I kind of did also, from a career standpoint, make a decision that I wanted to go find a great group of people to work with, and you know do that for the rest of my career, and uh, that's kind of what brought me back into companies like Diageo.
0: So that seems like a quite a, a, an annoying succession of quite successful jobs and performance and interests, uh, interesting stuff, but. I'm, I want to see the dark side you know what all right tell me about times in your career when it's gone awfully and you've made a mistake that you thought at the time you just it was horrible but in retrospect you're so glad that it happened
1: well I I would say probably quitting uh at the time that was not an easy that was not a really easy decision for me um I was doing really really well at Procter & Gamble I loved working with the team there and I was war I think I think also if you're familiar with P&G they have a promote from within strategy which means they never hire from outside so you're leaving as a senior person there is a very scary and fraught prospect because you've first of all my whole career for 10 years was based on that and it was a real plunge where I was deliberately choosing unemployment and homelessness over having a really great job at a fortune 500 company fortune 50 company uh, with, with a role in over $2 billion of a brand like SK-2. So it was, it was a real scary moment for me, and I thought on many occasions leading up to and then immediately afterwards that I was making this horrible, horrible mistake. Um, it's, I know it's not usual to probably talk about deciding not to pursue career as a great thing for your career, but what I changed me was I started looking at the way I thought about work fundamentally differently, And also kind of being quasi unemployed for three years made me realize what I did want from work and what was important to me at work and where I really felt like I was adding the most value so what sounds counterintuitive leaving your job to get a better job three years down the line ended up really working out for me and I don't think I counted on I think I had assumed in my heart that I probably would be throwing it all away and ending up actually a step back or a lateral movement at best after three years of unproductive work and in the end it actually gave me a lot of clarity about what I wanted and that what I cared about which made, I, made me perform I think better in interviews and ended up giving me an opportunity at the right kind of company that found that an asset instead of a disadvantage because at the time I was really terrified that it would count against me and I'm sure it has in many other conversations but I think it's made me a better person and made me a little bit clearer about what I want and what kind of companies I want to work for.
0: So. Next question is related to that. So on your wild three-year magical mystery tour <laughs> around the industry in different guises, different countries, very envious of, what new belief or behaviors have you picked up or taken on board that you weren't aware of when you were in the ascendancy at p and
1: I think it's sort of one of the things that I've started been started questioning as a result of this is what exactly the role of marketing as a space is starting to become because we're seeing all of this technology and all of this complexity start coming out and the role of marketing is also being called into question. There are many companies that are taking it out of their brand functions and marrying it to sales or technology. A lot of CMO jobs are starting to get put on the, redefined as growth officers or various things. And for me, it was sort of coming to terms with maybe what the future of marketing will feel like and what we should start be, we should start doing to operate that way. And so, The new belief I have is that marketing kind of goes beyond its traditional role around brand equity and starts being more about how do you look at a a company and look at the source of value that needs to be unlocked for the next three to five years. Because what I realized having a chance to work for all the different like P&G, really small startups and kind of lots of other companies in between those two states The general manager, whether he be running a startup or running a major multi-billion dollar corporation, is focused on next quarter's growth. He wants to make sure everything gets balanced. You're getting quarterly and you're setting up for the long term. The sales guys are focused on keeping the money coming in. The finance guys are worried about uh, accurate investments and returns and profit and loss. No one is actually looking at what could be the next big innovation or output that you could create because it's sort of not in anyone's specific role. Which means that, and marketing is in charge of brand, right? How, how we come across to people, how we build the company up from an intangible perspective. And I realized that it's as much marketing to go into your product and reinvent it, to identify the new marketplace that you need to go after to change the business model, as it is to come up with a really good campaign. I think one of the challenges marketers have is they have to start recognizing that if that's the role, what we do on a day-to-day basis has to reflect that as well.
0: So, so many things there. So, <laughs> you, you've, you've identified a gap or a, a pain point there, or like, yeah. And to to try and make sense of that myself, it, it's almost like that just coming up with a brand campaign and a message and a purpose isn't enough. It's about spotting the opportunity, whether that's a platform or a sales channel or whatever it is. So, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are kind of mid-career working for brands, mm-hmm. and someone might be on the train in London or somewhere thinking. OMG! How do I how do I do that? So, what what advice would you give to to someone, another brand, to to prepare their career for this change in the in the role of marketing within an organisation?
1: Sure, I, I think if you've been attracted to marketing, you're probably someone who is a jack of all trades, at least in some way, shape or form. You've got curiosity about a lot of different things. You're probably very creatively minded and interested in communication and persuasion. Those are really great fundamental core skills for this kind of role. I think it's why it's fallen to marketing to go there, because to basically come to grips with what I think the future of our our profession will be, you have to be curious. You have to pursue curiosity in a variety of different things and ask why. And you have to have a very broad definition of what your job could entail and be comfortable with that. The ambiguity of not knowing what you'll be doing every day and kind of the comfort of coming to grips with, well... If this is a problem that I see how do I go in and solve it even if it's not my job even if it's not something that I should be in charge of so that
0: that makes a lot of sense, but that really jars with my experience of working with brands. So brands have this role called a brand manager. Mm-hmm. It's not called a brand innovator or a brand disruptor or a brand let's go up, stick our necks on the line here. It's about like, here's this brand, protect this thing and make sure that it you know, it, it carries on existing in the way that it exists, which makes total sense, protect the brand equity. What you're talking about is like, wow, we're going to find new models and you haven't used new platforms, new, new uh, you know routes to the customer. And I think that those are very opposed so how, how do you, how do we start to shift that idea of protection to and moving towards risk
1: it's, it's a great question i think i mean what's ironic is that the brand management philosophy and everything you just talked about tom at its core is about preserving the brand and seeking new opportunities to grab drive value and i think what we've learned is that the world's starting to move faster and faster and as a consequence of that if you're not thinking about the near and long-term future of your business and your brand in the context of brand management, you're going to miss the next opportunity. So for a very long time in our profession, you could spend 10 years doing the same thing and that would be perfectly viable for your business. I think now, if you're not thinking about the next trend coming in three years from now, and your podcast is a great example of this, um, you're kind of missing out on the future. So one of the things that has happened is the, the world's become a really complex place full of lots of new toys, lots of new technologies, lots of new channel options. I don't think our thinking as marketers has evolved to match with the options and tools that we have. And that's one of the reasons why we struggle and we feel overwhelmed with everything out there that we could be doing and aren't sure where to get started.
0: So, overwhelm is, is a, a great point because, that yes, there is so much stuff. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm sure it's in um, so many presentations with the number of different MarTech platform yeah. it was 10 years ago and every year there's like 9 million more and they've all got exactly the same name and the same logo and um so let so that the many things you could do how do you, how do you decide what to do? How do you manage overwhelm? How do you manage the uh, just the relentlessness of the new opportunities? how How do you make sure that you're steering your team and partners towards the most effective solutions?
1: so it, it's a it's the duality of our profession really. Um, one of the things that we need to do is remain incredibly creative and curious and look at other opportunities. The other thing we need to do is be razor focused on strategy and focus. And that's important because I think the two need each other. Our role is fundamentally to bring new ideas and new thinking in, but if it doesn't serve a strategy and be very very focused on that strategy, we end up being very fluffy and woolly with our actions and we get similarly fluffy and weak results. With uh, I I I one of the saying, I can't remember where I heard it, but it was re- it resonates with me even to this day is that creativity actually thrives under constraint. So the more focused, the more clear and the more sharp you can articulate what you're trying to do, the clearer you're thinking and the better the creative. So whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed, I try and find a framework for strategy that lets me assess what I'm trying to do. Whatever I'm talking about should have a strategic objective. Whatever meeting I'm in, whatever discussion or technology I'm considering using in a plan has to have at the end of the day a strategic objective that cascades up into what I'm trying to do for this year on this business or what opportunity I'm trying to unlock. And once I get clarity on what that is, I know how to assess what I'm talking about. So whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed, it's usually because I've forgotten what I'm trying to achieve. And I need to get back to that core strategic constraint of I'm trying to do this while doing these other things at the same time. Does this option help me? And if not, how do I get it to that fix? Yeah,
0: that, that's, uh, that's such a lovely point. Mike. What what am I trying to do? Why am I doing this? It
1: it sounds really obvious, but with how complicated marketing is today, it's ridiculously easy to slip up and lose focus. Like sometimes you're in it because you've been doing it this way all this time. Sometimes you're doing it because there's so much money tied up into it and you're not asking the question of, does this money still make sense inside this bucket? Uh, Sometimes you're doing it because this is the agency I'm partnering with and this is how they say we should do it opening yourself up to getting back into well what am I here what what is even looking at your business from a full value chain standpoint and going what is the biggest thing that if I fix will unlock the most opportunity for my brand is it getting more customers is it converting customers better into the next stage of the path to purchase is it you know increasing usage frequency in terms of number of times people use us per year where is the biggest opportunity sometimes is the biggest unlock for your question. Because if you work out, it's actually getting the people who love us to use us one more time per year. That's a totally different business strategy to new user acquisition. But very often, we don't know what we're trying to do, and it means the whole strategy becomes much more complicated than it needs to be, and we get overwhelmed.
0: So, lots of good advice there. What is the bad advice or the bad recommendations that grind your gears that you hear from the industry?
1: There are a few because I'm pretty opinionated. Um, but basically, one of, the, one of the things that I kind of um, am very alert to is how often we use the word consumers. Uh, I have found that if you can replace the word consumers with people or the consumer group you're talking about, very freq- and very frequently what you're saying stops making sense. And that to me means if you start treating the people you're trying to market to like individuals... Your strategy doesn't make sense because consumers is an abstraction. It's a way of talking about people that dehumanizes them in some ways, makes them manipulatable or makes them somehow robots. And I find that if you replace it with people and all of a sudden it sounds weird or you think about your mom. An old piece of advice that I had was when you're talking about how your marketing program was and you put your mom as one of the consumers, does it still feel like the right thing to do? is a great way to sense check whether or not you're trying to manipulate someone instead of actually market with them and be of the service. Um, so that's one thing that I kind of hate. The other thing is probably campaign thinking. I think it's quite outdated to think and quite arrogant to approach our marketing as I'm going to come up with this message and I'm going to push it out to all of you people and you're going to listen to it and you're going to buy. I think that neglects the fact that people these days live in their own personal content universe they have total control over what media they consume they aren't brand loyal anymore so they're constantly looking for what value you're offering them in that given moment and they're in charge so if they're in charge we should start thinking about how do you reorient the entire marketing strategy on what they're about and give them what they need instead of worrying so much about what we're trying to say
0: so this all makes so much more sense now because at the start of the the meeting, we are talking about your shiny new object, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you, and I said, look, you need to tell me what this is in four or five words. And you said your shiny new object was always on receptivity backed ecosystems. Yes, which so now I've got to know you a bit better. Yeah. this makes a lot more sense that that's what your shiny new object would be. So I'm I'm a little more in the know about what that is. But could you explain what that shiny new object is?
1: Sure. Uh, it's it, look. This is. This object is more like a a thought process that I've started realizing is what I need to do. And it's part of, it kind of ties into a lot of the things we've been talking about, Tom. I've been really struggling to get my head around if the world has changed on us and we now have to pursue sources of value and we now have to contend with the fact that people are in control of their own content ecosystems, that they can decide when and where they engage with brands and they're less loyal than ever before, they trust advertising less than ever before. What on earth are we supposed to do? Because I've kept feeling like most of the things that we got we got taught in marketing school no longer apply in the current world. where media channels or there are thousands of different media channels we could choose to do. There are billions of different content formats we could play with. How do we get a message out to people? And the thing that started making the most intuitive sense to me is thinking about, well, if if marketing has to be opted into instead of something that I can push out to people, we have to make marketing a value-added service. Marketing has to be actually something you're buying along with the product because marketing was of use to me. Either it was entertaining and delivered to me at a time that I was receptive to that entertainment or it was useful and genuinely helped me make a good decision of something that I wanted to do. That line of thinking took me down into, obviously, receptivity as being the first thing that I gotta figure out. If I've got something that's of value, how do I go find people who would find it valuable and talk to them at the exact when and where moment that message would be most useful and then design the message based on that when and where receptive moment.
0: So that makes total sense at a very, very high level. Yep. But how do you practically apply that, right? Yeah. So you know, you've got a you know, portfolio of incredibly famous brands with amazing brand equity. But I don't know, say you're for some like, I don't know, an insurance brand or something yeah. that's yep. like less sexy than Johnny Walker, for yeah. example. How do you, How do you do that approach when it's not immediately obvious how a brand would provide that kind of marketing as almost as a service?
1: Well, you know, it's the funniest thing, but the bigger the company is and the, the more prestigious the brand is, the harder it is to actually get people to start moving towards this structure. Because when you're an insurance brand, you do have a much clearer perspective as to when do people actually want to talk about insurance when do they do it? So search is a big factor. Certain events in their lives or when they start going, well, I need to get serious about my insurance situation. Those moments become very clear, and the conversation you have with them becomes a very objective one. When I'm talking, uh, you know, one of the things that comes out whenever you do receptivity back and you start trying to track when would, when would content be welcome about my brand and how should it be presented, you start identifying moments like this. This is when people start thinking about a particular thing And this is how we need to get, come to them. I think the other thing that becomes very obvious here is you need to think about independent third-party endorsement, ratings and reviews, things like that. And that's how you need to lead, which very frequently is an afterthought in big brand programs. Whereas a lot of small guerrilla startup companies have made ratings and reviews and getting really great third-party endorsement because it's cheap and scrappy, the first thing that they do. And very frequently, that's why they come across as more credible than the big guys. So... When you have a flexible entrepreneurial structure and your path to purchase is simplified, you can actually get going with this a lot faster. I find the, the, the judgment becomes a lot harder and the, the processes in big companies become more of a barrier. But to kind of answer your question more directly, you start with where you see the most pain in your industry where are people struggling to make a decision where your brand is the best and most logical solution to the problem? How do you let them know that you exist at that point? And in what format do you do it so that it's welcomed and useful? But what if you're not the best brand? Well, see, it's a great question. Uh, I think a lot of companies try to paper around that problem, and I don't think that works anymore. So if you're not the best solution to the problem that you're trying to say you're trying to, there to solve, you better pick a different problem or fix your brand. Right? Because a product that's not genuinely superior in the moment that it we're talking about is never going to succeed long term. Because brand value is usually just an extension of reputation. And if you make something that's poor quality, it's not gonna work. Now, what I would say is sometimes you can solve this problem by sharpening your problem articulation. You might not be the best thing in all situations, but there will be some situations where you might be the best. So maybe that's what you do. Sharpen it for a particular kind of person or sharpen it for a particular kind of problem. Could be your way out. But honestly, if you if you suck and you suck at everything and you suck for all people, you have a more fundamental problem than a brand issue.
0: Yeah, I I obviously agree. And I can't remember who was on this podcast that said that um, marketing departments get super excited about marketing being the thing, Mm. whereas it's really should be pouring petrol on the fire you know, think of any of the, the great brands and you remove the products and you know, it's the, so the product has to be great and, yeah. but I think we sort of kid ourselves that we can, uh, you know, polish tools compl- and stuff.
1: I completely agree and and brand management for me is an extent, like the product is the brand at the end of the day. Like we're not, I think I think a lot of people who aren't in the marketing profession can sometimes look at our industry and this is our fault probably because of bad ironic marketing. We come across, like all we do is we provide the glitzy wrapping around the thing I think if we start redefining our role towards where the source of long-term value major product interventions to suit what consumers really need should be something we should be pushing to and very frequently the companies that succeed allow marketers to provide feedback to product design and development and upstream product supply generation and innovation if that's not happening we're not listening to the people that ultimately at the end of the day we serve our our in consum- our consumers. Well, I
0: think you've laid down the gauntlet to the industry in uh, quite an aggressive way there. I, I think it's brilliant. Uh, I think that you've you've asked some questions and given some uh, opinions that like, I don't think people have ready answers to, but I think we do need to answer those questions. So, Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the
1: podcast. Such no fantastic. problems, Tom. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: If anyone who's listening to this podcast would like to get in touch with you, um, you're speaking at Future? I had ju- I've just spoke oh, at Future. Just spoke, just, right, that was yesterday. Okay.
1: I had a great time at, with the team there. Um, Obviously, I'm on LinkedIn as Stuart LeBroy. Can you spell your name for anyone who's... Sure. It's S-T-U-A-R-T. And my last name is LeBroy, L-A space B-R-O-O-Y.
0: Fantastic. Stuart, thanks so much.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. See you around.